and they got so hooked on it that they decided that the better option was to just acquire the company instead of having to go in and then do the licensing leases and everything else like you normally do. So that's another one of my big models is if you believe in your product, I'll give it to my customers for free. I've gone in and my staff thinks I'm nuts. I went into a Fortune 50 bank once and this was a 300K contract. And I finally looked at the decision maker and said, listen, let us come in and do the work. And if you don't think it's Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show is part two of our episode with Dr. Eric Cole from Secure Anchor. If you missed part one, please go back and listen to all the things that he's done. Eric, I think maybe a question I had to start off here is, again, going back to how you were essentially a professional hacker for the CIA, trying to see if you could break into the CIA, and this, you know, these principles like how you did your thinking time, where you just flip, flip your time clock. What, what are those things called with the sand in them? I know you just told me. Hourglass. 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 Where you flip the hourglass and you just sit there with the pencil and the pad. Can you talk about how any of those lessons learned or those principles from that time helped you as, you know, chief scientist when you're at Lockheed Martin? Absolutely. And a lot of these principles, if you sort of read self-help books and stuff, you'll see a lot of them scattered throughout. But, but I sort of put them in a different priority order. To me, the most important thing I found is you need to listen a lot more than you talk. One of the things that got me in a lot of trouble at the CIA and even my first companies that I had is I always thought the way you prove you're the smartest person in the room is by talking the most and dominating the conversations. And what I realized end up happening is I would sit there and I would start talking and people would roll their eyes here or close again, right? Because I, I would just talk so much. And what I realized is you actually want to talk less and ask a lot more questions. So my general rule of thumb, and I always train my staff on this, is before you make a statement, you should listen for at least five minutes and ask at least two questions before you actually go in and answer it. So, so that would be the first one where is it's not the amount of time you talk, it's what you say that's most valuable. And I see that now where I'll be on a lot of board of directors for large companies, and I'll speak the least amount in those meetings. But when I talk or I ask a question, everyone pays attention. So I, I would urge you, speak less, ask more questions. And then the second big one is when things don't work out, it's not a failure. It's an opportunity for growth. Because I know early on, I used to get so stressed out and, and not sleep at night. If I tried to break into a system or I tried to do an experiment and it didn't work, I was just so angry and so mad. And what I realized is if I'm failing and I'm not successful, that means everyone else is. And here's the difference. Most people are going to quit. I don't. So the person that keeps running eventually wins the race. So anytime you fail, I always look at it. Okay, we just eliminated a few more of the competition. We just eliminated a few more of the competition. And it's to the point where my staff laughs because if one of my engineers fail and they're angry or mad, I laugh. I'm like, hey, 
five less people you're competing against. Keep on going. Right? It, it's just changing your perspective. No, and I, at my point now, it's easy because I know I will always be successful. But even if you're starting off as an entrepreneur, you got to believe in yourself that it might take a day, a month, a year. But if you keep going and you have that target, you will eventually be successful. And the more times it doesn't work, it's just less people that you're running against. Yeah. So, and, and tell me the company you were with that got sold to Lockheed. We, it was the Cytex Group, Inc. We called it TSGI was the acronym. Okay. And how, wh- how big were they when you joined them? When I joined them, I think they were about uh, 50 or 60 mil. And then I came in and, and I had an idea to essentially, th- there's a loophole in government contracts that if you have patents on technology, that you can actually justify sole sourcing the contract to your company because they don't have to go in and compete it. And that's the hardest thing for a small company when you have to compete against these bigger companies. Because let's face it, when you're competing against Raytheon or Lockheed Martin or Booz Allen, they'll undercut you just to win it. And then they'll make up their money on all the add-ons later. So so what I did was I, I researched, understood this, and I built out an entire division where we had, I think it was over 40 patents, and we used that to be able to go to governments that were doing open competition and convince them to sole source it based on the rules. And within a few years, we were able to grow by almost 300 million just by sole sourcing all those contracts. And then, and then how much did the company sell for? It was mainly a contracting company. We, we didn't have a, a ton of assets. So it was about a 1x. So we were about 400 mil at the time. And then I think we sold for, for just north of 400 mil. They threw in a little spiff for some of the IP, but it wasn't a whole lot. Yeah. And, and, and that's when I really learned my lesson where I went to McAfee because McAfee was a 7x because we had product subscription and reoccurring revenue. Mm-hmm. So if you're an entrepreneur, th- those are the magic words, subscription and reoccurring <laughs> revenue. That That's where the multipliers yeah. start getting real interesting. You know, it's funny you talk about the patents. The, the one other way I think about management consulting firm I used to be with when I did training for individuals from the CIA and some other intelligence community groups. And then at my other company since then, um, doing, you know, contract work for, for some of the special, you know, special mission unit folks, right. in the special operations command and uh, copyrighted material is actually the same thing. We could yeah. get sole source contracts because, because we had certain copyrighted material. And so anybody who's looking to sell to the government, these are, you know, a co- couple things to think about is, <laughs> is there something that meaningful we can get a patent for or something meaningful that we can get a copyright for uh it sure makes life easier right exactly and there i argue is most people are producing content like if you look at what a lot of people put on social media and that they put in other marketing brochures and stuff there's a lot of great content there i have a three-person team in my company where anytime i create videos social media or content they go in, they produce assets out of it, ebooks, copyright it, and, and protect and lock it down. And then once again, we end up turning some of that stuff into assets, selling it or licensing it to other people. So you nailed it. When you're producing information, it has value. Make sure you protect it. I love it. Well, so, you know, you go from, you know, like you said, you join a company that's doing 50, 60 million, and then all of a sudden you're the chief scientist at Lockheed. Can you, can you tell us a story about being at Lockheed? 
Uh, yeah, yeah I, I could give you a bunch, but probably the funniest was because when, when you have a company and you, you, you have ownership and leadership and, and you're one of the three or four top executives, you're very concerned about money and assets. And, and I remember one of the, the first meetings I'm in with Bob Stevens, who was the CEO and president at the time. And, and granted, I'm sure everyone knows, but Lockheed Martin, multi-billion dollar company. And we're trying to put together this budget for a multi-billion dollar aircraft project. And I sit there in a meeting and I, I kid you not, in hindsight, I'm like, what was I thinking? But, but I look at him, I'm like, I'm trying to watch the budget here. Is 200K too much for security? And, <laughs> and, and everyone sort of laughs a little bit and, and we finish the meeting and he goes, he goes, uh, Dr. Cole, please stay. And I'm like, okay. And he basically looks at me and says, don't ever embarrass me like that again. He goes, if you're going to give me numbers, whatever you're thinking, add a few zeros to it. Because <laughs> it turned out the proper budget was actually 22 million, not 200K. <laughs> and it was just, I was, in, I was in the other mindset of my business watching every penny that I'm just, in hindsight, I'm like, okay, that was pretty stupid. <laughs> That's funny. You know, I, I'm interested in... I'm interested in the differences that you saw at the product company because, you know, one of my friends and clients who we've had on the show, Amy Stellhorn, has Big Monocle. You know, she had Intel as a client and did a lot for McAfee. In fact, she invented, her firm invented World Password Day for Intel, where they got Amazon and all these people to start encouraging everyone to change their passwords at least once a year. But her husband was a cybersecurity guy for Stanford University and then over at Facebook. And so I feel like I got like, a glimpse into your world that way. And then, you know, I don't know, 17 years ago, like 2002, 2003, I was actually working for a, a penetration testing company and got to go to DEF CON for the first time and meet all these hackers. You know, it was a world I'd only seen on TV, right? Um, you more leather and purple hair than you could ever imagine in one location. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, leave all your personal devices back in the hotel room. Don't bring those with you, yeah. right? So I'm interested when you when you've come out of that much experience and then you're going over to McAfee and you're rethinking the product mix and you're obviously successful enough that Intel wanted to buy it from you. What's, what's one of the principles or what's one of the mental models that you used to help you rethink what McAfee was offering? So we talked about interviewing customers. What's another one? I call it, and, and, and different people use different numbers. I call it the 10% rule. And it, this is based on actual data. I think 20%, the normal 20, 80, I think is too high, five is too low. But what I mean by it is, if you look at a product, 10% of the functionality is really what matters. That's really what people are ultimately gonna decide whether to buy or not to buy the product. The other 90% is just nice to haves. And this is something that if you read a lot on Bill Gates, they did a lot with is really figuring out, okay, if you look at the early versions of Microsoft, they didn't work very well, right? They, they crashed. Everyone always jokes how Microsoft uses its customers as the beta testers and everything else, but they got the 10% right enough. There was enough that worked that they dominated the space. So I think sometimes, and, and I was guilty of this a little bit, technologists and entrepreneurs are perfectionists. We want it to be perfect. We want everything to be just right. And when you're releasing products, that's not how the customer looks at it. 
if you can go in and give them the 10% that will make a difference, the 10% that will change how they work or how they operate, that is what they're going to buy on. I mean, a great example is what's going on now with the pandemic, Zoom. The reason, uh, the 10% of Zoom was simplicity. If you look at why so many companies and so many entities utilize Zoom instead of all these other technologies that were out there, whether it's WebEx or GoToMeeting or everything else, I've surveyed thousands of people. And what it always comes down to is Zoom was simple and Zoom was easy. It didn't have all the security. It didn't have all the bells and whistles. But they understood that if they wanted to dominate in this market, now, of course, they were able to take advantage of the unfortunate lockdown, but they realized if they wanted to win with executives, it needed to be simple. And that was the 10% they focused on. So really understand what is it that your customers want with data, not emotions, and deliver that. And don't worry about all the other bells and whistles to hold up your product for months or years. Yeah. You know, I had the CEO of Zoom on this show and also named Eric. Must be must be a good name in tech, right? Exactly. It's got a good name. Good um, name. <laughs> good name. And, you know, I think he's, the other day I looked it up, I think he was worth four and a half billion dollars, right? And it's interesting because I had him on, I don't know, two, three years ago before, before they'd gone public. And he didn't quite have the attention he has today, right? And he was relentless in his customer service. To me, by far the most customer service, customer service, focused entrepreneur I'd ever met in my life. I mean, he had thousands of clients, you know, thousands of users. And when people would quit, he was personally emailing them saying, I'm so sorry to see you go. I wish there was something we could do. I'd I'd love to know. I'd love to get any feedback from you. You know, CEO of Zoom. He's got like, you know, 140,000 customers, right? And people write back, ha ha, this is a funny bot. You know, I know that's not you. And he's like, no, it is me. Do you want to hop on a Zoom call right now? I'd really like to hear what your experience was. And he turned around lots of customers, but word gets out about things like that, right? And I mean, it, it was a, it was interesting. You know, you talk, you've, you've talked a couple times today about, you know, listening more than we talk, right? And that guy just listened and listened and listened and was just so intent on, this needs to be high quality, you know, like, it needs to be less choppy than Skype, right? Because yep. he came out of Cisco. Cisco's a fifty yep. billion dollar giant. You know, we just actually this week we just had the chief technology officer from Cisco back on, right? And it's interesting to think how they lost that guy. He was an employee and goes on to build a twenty billion dollar company, almost half the size of Cisco without them. And you wonder if they'd listened to him more if they could have kept him around or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. You're not, not to pivot on that, but that's the thing I, I think of. If you have a great employee, it's much cheaper to keep them than to have them leave. What if Cisco would have kept them in and instead of, hopefully nobody gets mad at me, their, their WebEx, which isn't really popular, what if they had Zoom as the Cisco solution? Think if they kept that guy happy. And, and then the, the other person I'm sure you know of, but when I think of customer service is Zappos and Tony Shane. I'm sure you read Delivering Happiness, but he's another one. If you ever have an opportunity to sit down with him, he is so passionate about exceeding customer expectation and making the customers happy. And that's spot on, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, he invited me out. He he and another woman that he was partnered with have a program where they would take you out to North, North Las Vegas and try to show you why you might want to relocate your company there and kind of see the whole Zappos thing. 
and we actually got to go meet him in person and actually go to his apartment, which was interesting. But I got to hang out with him a couple of times during that week. And it's interesting because he's such a mild mannered guy. You know, like he comes across more like the engineer in the back of the room instead of the like Richard Branson face of the company. Right. Yeah. But by doubling down on this like human connection principle, you know, look at the look at the behemoth he builds and gets gets bought out for a billion dollars from Jeff Bezos. Right. Exactly. What I love about him is because a lot of these other CEOs out there, like if you look at Oracle and others, that they sort of give the perception that you have to be an a-hole to succeed. Mm-hmm. And what I look at, like about Tony and some of these other guys they show you is, is you could be the nicest guy on the planet and still make it also. Yeah, no kidding. Well, going back to McAfee, can you talk to us about, so, so and how big was McAfee when you joined? And then how, and then how much did it sell for to Intel? approximately that, you that, that that's a good question if I, I would just be making up uh, numbers <laughs> okay numbers but what what i could tell you is they were because r- right around 2008 2009 is when it became very competitive that's when a lot of the new malware that's when zero day came out and, and you had a lot of the new high-end stuff that a lot of the companies were not doing very well because they were old school signature and they weren't working on the new behavioral heuristics. So McAfee, like others, were struggling and not doing very well. And what I convinced the CEO to do was they wanted to go in and the way McAfee's always done it is just keep adding on to the existing stuff. So come in for a pit stop, change the tires, change the hood, change the paint color, Mm -hmm. but keep the core components. And what I convinced them, I said, listen, if we want to win in this game, and ultimately get acquired, we have to have unique intellectual property. We have to differentiate ourselves. So it was a very move, but you got to take risk, high risk, high payoff. And we went in and redesigned the entire product lines. Now, in order to balance the risk, we did it product by product. We didn't do it all at once. We took the poorest performing component and Dave DeWalt basically said, okay, take our firewall. It's, It's pretty much crap in the marketplace. And if you could prove to me that you can go in and rebuild it from scratch and revamp it in two years, then I'll let you do it with the other product line. We actually had more money coming in from the firewall than three previous years in 10 months just by rebuilding it from scratch. And he was like, okay, sold. And that's when we did that. We captured the intellectual property with patents. And I think that was one of the key reasons why Intel wanted to acquire. That's amazing. So when you think about how often as humans we want to give ourselves a pass, and we want to tell ourselves and our customers and anybody who will listen, oh, this is completely new, right? But really, we're just going in for a pit stop and a, and a, and a paint change, right? <laughs> Maybe pump up the tires. Can you talk about what it took for, you know, specifically there, there's a lot of money, you know, just doing the pit stops has worked in the past. Can you talk about what any other aspects of that pitch to get that faith to even do the first one of... And any other elements that helped put him over the top of, okay, you can, you can go try this with the firewall. I, I think it was a couple of factors. One is ultimately the biggest driver of decisions is money. And the executive team was seeing that what we were doing wasn't working. So, so one of the things you sometimes have to do, depending on where you are in a company as an entrepreneur is you have to allow failure to occur. Because if failure doesn't happen, 
then people don't realize that the current option isn't working. So you have to let it fail. And most executives are very good at not doing Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So you sometimes have to let it fail. They realize, okay, this isn't working, and then they'll give it a new shot. So that was one of the things I had to be patient. And I had to let, even though I, I knew I was right, I had to let the company fail and lose significant market share before they realized that the painting the hood and changing the tires wasn't working. So that that's the first piece. The second one is pick something where you can get a win. So I didn't take the product that was doing okay. I took the worst product. I, I took the product that was crashing and burning. And yes, it was higher risk, but it also gave me the opportunity for higher payoff. So the other thing I would say there is if you really believe in what you're doing and you want to make a difference in the world and be successful, you got to take big chances. They need to be calculated. They, they shouldn't be stupid, but you need to take the big chances. Whenever you play it safe, whenever I played it safe in my life, it's never worked out as well as when I, I just jump off knowing that that parachute will open at some point. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right, to to think about back to Warren Buffett and his margin of safety. You know, he wants to buy he wants to buy a good product when everyone's emotions are really down about it because the upside is that much bigger, right? It sounds like a similar principle there. <laughs> you know, when you get a hold of something where there's no room to go but up, you know, obviously within reason there. I, I can really see that. You know, it, it's interesting this idea of that you brought up here of differentiation and patents a couple of different times. You know, I'm looking here, I think it's August 19th, 2010, purchase of McAfee for $6.8 billion, right? And like you Was said, it six? Did I get it wrong? No, I I'm sorry. 3.2, man, I really screwed that one no, up. No, no, 7.68. I, I said that okay. wrong. 7.68 billion, right? And you think about, there were obviously other security people in the market that Intel could have bought instead. And yet that differentiation and, you know, again, I think this whole show is going to be about Warren Buffett, but he talks about, he wants to buy a, pro a company that has a, a high walls around its castle and a moat to keep people out. And, you know, if that is a defensible patent, right? A, you did something different and then B, it's a defensible patent or copyright or something, you know, no wonder you can get that kind of a multiple, right? The, the other trick, I'll let you know a little secret there, and and hopefully you or the listeners don't get upset, but it, but it's another model that, that I found to be very successful. And I always joke with entrepreneurs, I go, what is one of the most successful models in the world? And, and they come up with all crazy things, and the answer is drug dealers. Okay. And the, the reason why drug dealers are so, so successful is the first hit is free. They get you addicted to the product, and then they make you pay. So, so I, I always jokingly use the drug dealer model. The other thing that not a lot of people know is the other hidden thing behind the acquisition by Intel was McAfee went in and we did a joint partnership with them where normally we would charge a lot to use our intellectual property. But we basically said for six months, we'll let you use the technology for free. And they got so hooked on it that they decided that the better option was to just acquire the company instead of having to go in and then do the licensing leases and everything else like you normally do. So that's another one of my big models is if you believe in your product, I'll give it to my customers for free. I've gone in and my staff thinks I'm nuts. I went into a Fortune 50 bank once and this was a 300K contract. And I finally looked at the decision maker and said, listen, 
let us come in and do the work. And if you don't think it's valuable, you don't have to pay us anything. And if you think it's valuable, you pay us what you think it's worth. And my, my staff was like, you are nuts. <laughs> but we went in and here's the funniest part. The original contract was 300K. I did the first assessment. I said, you just pay us what you think it deserves. Within two years, that was a $600,000 customer. So, so sometimes you got to think out of the box, be a little crazy. And if you believe in your product, give it away for free for three months or give it away for free and let them pay for what they think. And if you really have something valuable, you're going to make more money than if you had a contract in the first place. I love it. I love it so much. Well, maybe we'll finish off continuing my obsession with the CIA here. So a question I have is, when you when you were you know spending these seven years trying to hack in right were there limitations like what were the ground rules like were you allowed to do social engineering stuff or or what what did that look like and, and I have to be a little careful because yeah, I don't yeah, want to sure. get arrested after this podcast yeah yeah uh, but but just so we're clear I, I wasn't some of it yes was trying to to break into agency systems to test their security but some of it was also breaking into third parties around the world. Okay. So, so they, when I did the work, I had, I had a lot of lawyers I was working very closely <laughs> with. So there were a lot of d- d- sure, d- different sure. regulations in place, but, but yeah, it was, it was across the board, but I will tell you, and it's true today and it was true back then, why I love technology and I, I love all the hacking, the easiest, quickest, simplest way to break into any system is social engineering. Humans are the weakest link. I can always find a vulnerability in a computer if I look long enough. It might take me three or four months, but I'll eventually find a vulnerability in a computer operating system. You give me a human, and I've never in more than 60 minutes never found at least two or three vulnerabilities. Everybody has vulnerabilities. Everybody has touch points. So the human link is always the weakest link in any system. Yeah, you know, so I've read the, you know, the classic books, the Kevin Mitnick books or ones like this, right? And then I've had, you know, folks from FBI counterintelligence on the show. For people who don't know social engineering, how would you define it for folks? So the the easiest definition of social engineering is it's lying. <laughs> it's, human, it's human manipulation. I'm telling you what you want to hear. So you perform and act the way that I want you to act. I'll give you a simple example. I don't actually do this. A buddy of mine did this, but one of my employees that I traveled with, whenever we went to hotels, he would always get the upgrades. He would always get the suites. And I'm the owner of the company and I'm the one with all the points. I'm like, what's going on? So one day I listened to him and here's what he does. He walks up to the counter and he, he, he sits there and goes, oh, I, I am so tired. I'm so glad I'm at the hotel. And the person behind the counter says, what's going on? He goes, you know something? Three weeks ago, my wife had our first child and because i knew i'd be traveling in three weeks i got up every night with the infant so my wife could sleep and i'm just exhausted so i'm just looking forward to such a good night's sleep and what's the person behind the counter oh that's so nice you're such a kind person you're so sweet well let me see if i can get you a free upgrade let me see and and he just would play them like that and real simple it took 45 seconds but just by setting the scenario he was able to get those people to act in an emotional way and he knew what their response would be and he would get upgrades more than I ever did. And that's just a simple example of social engineering. <laughs> See, I think it's easier for me to be into social engineering when we're talking about like 
our charity going after people who are harming kids or like national security, right? I love how effective that is. The morality of it, it might be a separate, a separate, <laughs> a separate issue, right? But I'm interested when you think about, let, let's talk about like a law enforcement situation, undercover. If you had one principle for somebody who had done some undercover work and now they're trying to up their game on their social engineering, specifically with this criminal network they're trying to infiltrate. What What's one social engineering principle you'd have for somebody in that place? It's I'll, I'll actually give you two. One is you have to create an emotional situation for the person on the other side. And you have to do it in a way where they suggest the con. If you And I'll use my friend's example because it's perfect. He created an emotional scenario where, by the way, he wasn't married. It was total BS, but, but he, he made it up. But, but he created an emotional scenario. And notice, he never asked for the upgrade. But he knew that if he created that emotional scenario, they would automatically perform in a certain way. Imagine if he went up to the counter and he said, I'm exhausted. My wife just had a baby. Can you give me an upgrade? how less effective it would have been. So, so many times in social engineering, when people are doing it for a good cause, like with yours, they get too anxious and they get too pushy and the person's defense comes up. You want to just be very relaxed, just create the emotional scenario and just let that person do what they do and let them suggest the con. Patience is key. The more patient you are in letting it unfold and not rushing it, the more successful you'll be at social engineering. You know, it's funny. I, I love it. It's funny to me that I feel like so many of your answers, which are so true about like patience and listening are like, I could have learned those in Sunday school, right? As a kid. Yes. And yet as a full grown supposed adult, how many times do I not use those? Right. And uh, it's funny how something so simple can be so magical. Now, and you nailed it because I, I like I, I pursue success, self-help. I mean, I, I've gone to all the seminars. I've spent more money than you could ever imagine. And what I finally realized one day is all the answers I need are within me and are super simple. I just need to follow the basic principles, right? It's not some magic formula that you need to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for. It's just listen, be patient. Treat people with kindness and deliver quality, and it's like, wow, success is really that easy. And the answer is yes. <laughs> well, because it's so tempting not to, right? Because we have to, we have to struggle more in order to make it so our clients don't have to struggle, and that like goes against all of the all of the survival mechanisms in our brain. You know, we are always thinking conserve energy, conserve resources. You know, like that we're so hardwired as humans, and yet. Our self-sacrifice to reduce somebody else's struggle is such a huge magnet, but you're right, it's uncommon, isn't it? Exactly. It's sometimes the simple things in life that people overlook. Yeah. Well, I love it. Well, you know, when we're doing some more child rescue stuff, may have to may have to call you and get some more advice. I'd love to help, and that's a thing that's near and dear to my heart, so keep my number close, and I'd be happy to help you out. I love it. Okay, well, for anybody who missed it at the end of part one, Will you again, will you tell us about the books, the podcast, the website, and where to catch you on social? Sure. So secure-anchor.com is my website. It has my uh, my regular books, my eBooks, a lot of content there. I'm very active on social, D-R-E-R-I-C-C-O-L-E, Dr. Eric Cole, D-R-E-R-I-C-C-O-L-E. I'd love to connect with you, love to help you out, and hopefully my content could be of value to you. 
That's great. Well, thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Bye everyone.